Support for KXSF is provided by Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned cooperative that has been serving San Francisco vegetarian food and providing a model for sustainable living since 1975. Rainbow is located at 1745 Folsom Street. Visit them online at rainbow.coop. KXSF would like to thank Rainbow Grocery for its continued support. Room. And yeah, this is, as mentioned uh, previously, I watched Black. Uh, this is a very important film. So hello, uh, Mike. Hello, Darwin. Thank you so much for joining me today. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Hello. Hello, Hello Darwin. Hi. I can hear you too. Hi. Hi, everyone. I know. It's great. We, we, we always have to, you know, when we're doing Zoom interviews, we always have to have to say, can you, uh, can you hear me? Because uh, you never know. But uh, yeah, so I, there is so much that I want to to say about this movie, uh, Darren, I'm, I feel that I'm sure you probably have a similar th um, thinking. So let's just get right into it, um, yeah. Mike, Michael. So if you can just, can you just give everyone a let's say a quick quick synopsis of Black as You Are, and then why you wanted to make this movie? Right. So Black as You Are is a documentary that journeys through the intersectionality of Black and Brown queer people fighting for equality within their own families and fighting for equality within their own communities. And so one of the reasons I decided as a director to create this film was to actually, in one way, cope with the trauma I was experiencing uh, during the lockdown of having to witness and see it day after day um, individuals like George Floyd, um, <clears throat> Ahmaud Arbery, Dominique Remy Fells, and Ayana Dior, people that were brutalized either at the hands of the police or brutalized by people within their own communities, um, especially when it came to Black, uh, LGBTQ, and trans folks. And so I say, you know, I've been, I've been protesting in Brooklyn, because that's where I live. And so I said, I want to do more. I want to use my art. As uh, Nina Simone said, it's an artist's duty to speak of the time. So I said, let me use my God-given gift as a creator, as a creative to put something together so people can see what's, what I'm experiencing emotionally, but also to what I want to mirror and show the world that's happening, you know, and especially to other black and brown queer per, uh, people of color. And it seems like when, at the beginning of the film, you're doing rehearsals for a play. And it's, it sounded like that, that you were supposed to start rehearsing in 2020, but you ended up rehearsing in 2021. Right. Yeah. yeah, so I was actually preparing for a gay pride uh, event where I was going to produce a play, which is basically Black as You Are, but a play. Uh, but it was stopped due to the shutdown. And so because it was stopped due to the shutdown, you know, I said, you know, I, I really want to get this word out there about queer phobia in the black community. Um, but, you know, on a larger scale, it's about queer phobia everywhere. It's about understanding um, and working past, you know, ignorance, you know, having more than tolerance, but having acceptance and having affirmation. So I was creating the play 
and I was rehearsing the play and then the shutdown happened. And then we started seeing all these images, you know, being stuck at home. You started seeing all these images of police brutality. Um, you started seeing a lot of attacks towards LGBT people. And I said, you know what? I just have to do something about this. And so I actually end up using pieces of my play and kind of like infused it into the documentary. So therefore it's like this, it's like this hyper grade version. There's actual subjects who are going through real life situations. And then I'm also telling a little bit of the story of my own self as a queer black man growing up in the South and you know, kind of being put to the template of things that most guys would do at that age, you know, um, football, basketball, and just kind of telling my story and, you know, trying to make a parallel so people can say, can see, you know, am I in that situation? You know, how can I express myself? And I did that with Black As You Are. I have to remind myself to turn my mark on too. Uh, so yeah. it, I'm just wondering, so this, it's playing this weekend, uh, 6.15 on June 19th, which is Juneteenth at uh, the Castro Theater in San Francisco. Has it premiered, has there been a premiere already? Yeah, so we actually had a premiere at Outfest Fusion, uh, which was in Los Angeles. And it was a really great, great um, premiere. And I really appreciate the Outfest family uh, for, you know, wanting to ex expose this film to the world. And, but now I'm getting ready to make my Bay Area debut uh, in San Francisco. And I absolutely adore um, the individuals involved and the board involved with Frameline and how much they were passionate about having this particular documentary play at Frameline and how it has so many tears. And so, yeah, so this will be our Bay Area and San Francisco debut. But the cool thing about it too is it's the first award ever given to this film. And even though we had our premiere towards the end of April, uh, now, you know, we're accepting our first award from Frameline called Out in the Silence Award, which is an award that speaks about people overcoming adversity uh, in certain areas and certain parts of the world and, you know, moving the fight forward and informing people about what's happening in the world. So I just feel incredibly elated and delighted that now we have an award from Frameline, but we're also uh, screening Juneteenth, which is June 19th. Uh, at Frameline. And if for those, of course, that know the history of Juneteenth, um, I just think it's a wonderful time to have Black As You Are film and also uh, premiere in San Francisco through Frameline. Yeah. At what time is the showing? Sorry. Oh, yeah. The showing is at 6.15 at the Castro. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Which is yeah. A, a, an, an amazing theater. Too. Yeah. 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 Historic, amazing, beautiful theater. Yeah. I, I just want to say thank you so much for for even making this production. I was sitting here watching it yesterday, and we watched it like right before we got on. And I've never felt more seen for all the conversations I personally had and the interactions I went through. Even like the barbershop scene, like for me, like I'm from New York City. I grew up in New York City. I am. My parents are Dominican. I was born and raised in Queens. Um, you know, 
Latino and that in itself, there's already so much to kind of break down because I also grew up in a community that was very stereotypical and racist towards other people of color. Mm -hmm. So to be, for you to just have put this all together, like I just felt like, I just started crying from the minute I just started watching it because I was just like, wow, like this is beautiful. So thank you so much. Yeah, no, it is. And, and you know, what... One thing, it's like, I think in a way it's a very brave film to make because when you are part of a marginalized community, you often, there's, there's, it's almost it's like there's a taboo to talk about some of the problems and the internal yeah. bigotry within it. You know, for instance, in the gay community and the gay, gay and lesbian communities, there's racism, but no one really talks yeah. about it. And not, and there, no one talks and, about it. And there's transphobia. I have, I mean, I, I will say this like point blank. I know like cisgender gay white men who are hella transphobic. And uh, yeah. it's it's really, I find that really you know, disturbing. So I think it was really brave to, you know, to take this on a topic, you know, talking about the transphobia and, and the homophobia, but even more specifically the transphobia within, you know, communities of color. And I noticed that uh, you know, in the barbershop discussion in the film, there's one man who cites the Bible as justification for homotransphobia. And, you know, we hear this not just, you know, among people who are black, people who are brown, people who are white, you know, used as a justification. Uh, mm. And I think that the way it was touched on in the movie, it was really, it was very, um, you know, you talked about power and othering you know, as a factor. And I was wondering how much you think that, you know, black people or, you know, people of color who disapprove of LGBTQ people and you know their sexuality and gender um are motivated by this need to other because uh they've been othered and how much by placing themselves superior uh, uh, you know because they're cisgender or heterosexual that gives them sort of like a a, a sense of power and you know michael robertson talks about that a little bit in the film but i, I was just i just wanted to hear you know for, from you what you know what your thoughts were on that yeah so when it comes to the aspects of like what I call mirroring the community. It's almost like, and I'm sure Darwin, you can understand what I'm saying. It's kind of like exposing the dirt under the carpet in your family's house. You're not supposed to do that, except yeah. your family. You know what I'm saying? Like what stays in this house, I mean, what goes on in this house stays in this house. This and that's house. kind of like a model that a lot of people, not just black folks, but like a lot of people have within their own family. So I thought it was time that we stopped sweeping the dust under the rug. I think it was time that we start exposing the dust and cleaning from underneath the rug to actually make a healing space uh, for the family, for friends, for, uh, acquaintances for coworkers, you know, I think with black as you are, it really, even though it, it may surfacely seems like, oh, this is just for black people, but really it's for everybody. It's a culmination of creating a space of love and affirmation. What does that look like? And I never growing up, I remember like as a kid seeing Paris is burning, um, like at the video store when I was like really young and I, and thinking, are these people gay? But I was too scared to pick it up because I didn't want my family to think that, oh my God, he's looking at a gay DVD cover of like something. We don't know what it is, but I just never forget moments like that in my life. And, you know, I think that was me at 10 or nine years old coming to terms or kind of recognizing uh, queerness in whatever way you want to, you know, call it at that time. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's basically a chance for us to, to mirror what's happening in our community. And like you were mentioning before, uh, Pamela, is when you talk about like Michael Roberson, we talk about the aspects of other, we also have to look at the patriarchal structure um, that really is the, the precipice for like white, white supremacy within this country, you know? And so, you know, those kind of things, I think, just creates dialogue. And I think as soon as we start having this dialogue with one another about white supremacy, about patriarchy, about things of this nature, what's happening with our, our queer kids, our queer family members, is when we really can start healing. Yeah, and I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, and, and I know, I think Michael Roberson also talked about this a bit and how you know, when we talk about white supremacy, it's not it's not just like white supremacy is is the notion of like the patriarchy that comes along with with white supremacy too, and so I I did some research on the instances of you know, crimes and especially murders you know towards trans people, which is probably very much you know underreported because so often trans people are misgendered. But uh, over, it's, it's a steady climb. Every year it keeps going up. I'm not sure where we are in 2022, but 2020 was high and 2021 was, was, was higher. And it's not just the United States, though. It's throughout the world. And it seems like the highest instances are actually in Central and South America. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about that. And the, we have this idea of, like, you know, the, like the macho sort of, like, you know, Latino sort of way of going through the world. But, in fact... In you know, Central and South America, and, and even North America, you know, there are indigenous societies that didn't have this white supremacist patriarchal outlook. And mm -hmm. so I wonder if what's, you know, why we see these, these high murder rates and we have this idea about like South American and Central American societies as, as being like, you know, so like, you know, having this machismo is, is not the, like the color of is not it's not about people with brown skin it's about european white supremacy and how that impacted the you know the culture in these areas over hundreds of years yeah i think i i may i have something to say to add on to that i recently went to the dominican republic um where i had really interesting conversations about like with queer people, LGBTQI people there, and just like their struggles. And, you know, there was this beautiful woman and she was like, she's, she identified as, as lesbian. She had tattoos, she had piercings, and she was telling me like the struggles she went through where she couldn't even find a job, where everyone that she couldn't relate to anyone. And then my other friend who literally couldn't go, he can't even go to get treated for for an, for an STD that he thinks he has because there isn't even the option to get treated for it, like to even test yourself for it. And he thinks that he has one. And it's just like, there's just too much like uh, discrimination or there's just like all these different layers and he feels embarrassed to even go and ask. And I'm like, this isn't even okay because it just feels like the community there they don't have the same rights. And then when you look at it as like the patriarchal structure that has existed in the country from a European standpoint, and you kind of trickle all that down, the, the norm in everywhere else, even in America, is not, is not, it's not catered to anyone that's outside of the white male structure. And you look at everyone in power in Dominican Republic too, and even though they're Hispanic, they're still very old, much older and they're white. 
and you're just like, okay, but like, yeah, also realize that this country was colonized and that we also are literally a product of colonization and we do have black in us. And it's just like trying to have those conversations even there was so much more frustrating than having them here because there I felt privileged because I was stepping into the space and I was seeing it with my privilege being in the States, having more rights, but then there, they, people that are queer, like a lot of them don't, can't even get a job because they can't represent themselves the way they want to. And they have to assimilate to like this macho and religious view of like needing to fit in. It kind of rambled a bit, but it was just like having those conversations was really painful, but also I felt like I needed to just get a sense of it because I went there looking for it because I wanted to know what the LGBTQI community looked like there. And things are changing. There are definitely protests, but the fact that like people can't even find employment or go to a doctor's office and simply just like survive, do the normal things, like that to me was so... I was so angry. I'm still angry thinking about it and trying to correlate all these intersectionalities. And yeah. Yeah. And, and, but that's, that's true here too. There are plenty of states yeah. here where you can get fired or not hired because you're, you're LGBTQ. Yeah. Uh, so, and, you know, unfortunately, it seems like from a legal standpoint, it's probably only going to get worse in, in a lot of states. You know, rather than getting better, um, you know, there was one thing that, uh, you know, Dr. Charlene Sinclair said, too. She said, you know, here you have a, a transgender queer person saying, I'm going to fully step into who I am and have society at large saying, wait a minute, that is not who we are. How, how dare you you release that? You know, because you know, and it, cause it makes people feel unstable and mm -hmm. uncomfortable. And I think we're at this point uh, in this this country, you know, forgetting about other countries for a minute. But, you know, in this country where. On one hand, if you are identify as LGBTQIA, mm -hmm. it, it's there are, are more freedoms and freedom to come out in places than there than there has ever been. On the other hand, there is this like incredible repression, and where you do have so many people with like bills like the "Don't Say Gay" bill saying, "Wait a second, this is making us uncomfortable," and it's and it's, and same thing with critical race theory. You know how 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 dare you how dare you say that we need to consider history through the point of view of you know that's not the white supremacist point of view. Um, right. So we're at it's it's an interesting juxtaposition we're in the country um, and there and there is this real uh, this tension because I think you know in let's say you know sixty years ago be, you know before we had civil rights legislation uh, and you know before it you know when when most people who were queer stayed in the closet. You didn't have this other side saying, "Wait a second, no, that's not okay," and but now at least we do have that where there where there is this tension. So I think I think what's interesting is that when you have a movie like like what you know the, like Black as You Are, you know, comes into it, is that it has the power for people who are let's say in parts of the country where you know they're trying to, you know, through education erase, you know, erase histories. Mm -hmm. you know, you're making this film that people are still going to be able to access. Right. And, and that's right. something that's very important. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I think with having those aspects like what's happening in Florida, um, finding ways, oppressive ways through legislation, uh, through the political landscape, uh, through political demagogues that are 
curating spaces and groups of people to go against other groups of Americans or just people in general um, when it comes to their own, you know, liberations and, and, and aspects of freedom is incredibly tumultuous. You know, when, as you were speaking about, like going to DR and seeing those oppressive states, it, and you also mentioning too, Pamela, that it, it actually happens here. Um, I had a documentary before this um, called Party Boy, and it's about crystal meth. Uh, affecting the the black and brown LGBTQ community and how it just kind of came out of nowhere um, and how it was kind of driven through social media and technology through like dating and hookup apps and how that had aspects of, you know, like racism and, and fetishizing black and brown bodies. And when I did that tour of, for that documentary, I went to a lot of different places like in Birmingham, um, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, and I would hear so many stories, especially in some of these smaller cities in the South, to where they would have one doctor or two doctors in the entire state of Mississippi that focuses on internalized medicine with people who are HIV positive. And because everyone in that community and their mother and grandmother and aunts work in that hospital and they know exactly what room, what wing that is, it causes a lot of people within the community that are part of the LGBTQ plus community to not go seek medical help, to not get anything to help them when it comes to like maybe um, trying to cure um, a STD or STI because it comes with stigma with going into that particular place because there's only one and two doctors that treat that, you know? And so therefore you have a multitude of young queer people, especially young black queer people that are just almost selecting to die rather to fall into that stigma or have people notice that they're HIV positive. So we, we have these kind of silos that are happening to this day. And I just thought to myself, my God, you know, you know, now that I'm, you know, in a space where I'm going to be approaching 40 in a couple of years, you know, it's like, I look back, you know, you know, from my twenties and now it being in my late thirties and I look back and say, my God, I wonder if that would have been me in that space, if I wouldn't have had an outlet um, as a young person, and maybe if I didn't end up moving to Brooklyn um, and kind of experiencing this metropolitan lifestyle and, and, you know, mingling with different people of the world, would I still be in Texas? Would I still be sequestered in a space to where I feel like I am oppressed? And I would choose rather to die than to medically and psychologically get help for myself or to be able to speak to other peers who may be going through the same thing all because of stigma and what's actually happening in Florida for me I feel is compounding that negativity for those people that stay in those exact same spaces yeah uh, so before our interview I was interviewing some members from Band Commando which is a um a a queer super group, uh, you know, kind of based in California. The mm -hmm. members are, you know, most but not all the members are, are people of color. Uh, you know, several of the members are, are transgender. Uh, so it's, and they have a, a, a few songs and uh, one song in, in particular called Hotel Essex that, that talks about AIDS. And it seems to me that no, that AIDS is almost like, okay, you know, you, at this point, it's a treat. It's treatable, and especially like here in the Bay Area, if someone's HIV positive, it's no longer a death sentence. And I think for some people, let's say of you know 
both of you are generations where you were either very young or you weren't even born when, when uh, AIDS was ravaging communities. You know, not just not just the gay male community. Also, you know, there are the black community was also you know it was it was it was rampant. And but in other parts of the country, there is st it still has this this stigma. And you know something that I was wondering when, uh, when I was watching your film is if you could draw a line connecting AIDS and the devastation it had you know, on the gay community, on on you know black communities, um, and the increase in violence toward black trans people, especially black you know, black trans women. Uh, you know, to me, there there seems to be some sort of correlation there, uh, where there's this, you know, this this health epidemic that's happening. And, but it's just not being dealt with, bump because, and it's not, or it's not being dealt with, yeah, mm -hmm. as, as with a sense of urgency, because uh, these, because of the othering, and it's like this idea of these lives don't have the same level of value. Whether it's a, you know, a, a gay white man who's dying in a hospital room in New York City in 1982, you know, or mm -hmm. a black trans woman who's who's been murdered and dismembered and body thrown into the river in 2020. Uh, it seems to me, and this, I guess, it's going back to what we were talking about before, but it's this devaluing of life and this othering, and I, I, I see a like a, a line that really connects the connects the two, even though we're dealing with an epidemics that you know are kind of decades apart. Right. So you know, it's funny. I'm actually working on a film right now that's similar to that subject matter, but like I explained to a lot of different people is that, um, you know, the black church, places like the black barbershop are like the centers of some of our communities. You know, the black church where we can come together, we can rally together, we can talk about aspects of politics, um, aspects of what's happening in the community, all these things through the black church. So the black church has literally been a center or the epicenter of the black community and things that happen to the black community, a lot of times are discussed within the black church. And I think one of the arguments that a lot of people, different people say during the, during the, the elevation of the crack era within the black community in America, and then simultaneously having um, HIV AIDS take hold and having this stereotype at the beginning from a lot of queer black people that I heard that it's a white gay man's disease, black people can't get it. You know, these were rumored, um, these were rumored subject matter that I was informed from uh, older friends of mine <clears throat> who were in the early 80s and a lot of them in the community was like, oh, you can't get that, you're black. And so they would stop, a lot of them told me they would stop, you know, going into Manhattan because they didn't want to um, necessarily be associated with that. And everyone in the community saw it as a white gay person disease. Well, they were also being the face of it and fighting for it. But silently, it also happened to people in the black community. And that's the unfortunate part. And because a lot of times the church did not want to recognize that, they chose to deal more with what was happening in the crack era. Uh, on the crack epidemic than to focus what was happening when it came to HIV AIDS because then it brought up aspects of sexuality it brought up the aspects of sex you know which a lot of us you know in our own family those are aspects of taboo conversations but now like in this film I think we kind of bust the doors open and say look when you start putting all those stereotypes away um, just like this can happen to a white queer 
trans woman. It could happen to a white gay man. It could happen to a black gay man, a brown gay man, or, you know, a person in question, a non-binary individual. It can happen to anybody, you know. And now that we see that, everyone's trying to, you know, jump on board to, to see how can we eradicate this situation. But back in the day, um, when you looked at the black community, I, I felt like from what my research and also just growing up is that they chose the, the black church really focused on you know, how can we come against the crack epidemic, you know, and not so much the HIV AIDS. Now we're trying to catch up, you know, and you do have aspects of the black community that are very supportive of the LGBTQ community. Things are changing. They're slowly changing, but things are changing. So I definitely want to make sure to put that out there um, as well. Just like in the film, you know, we had the barbershop scene, but towards the end, you had a young heterosexual black teenager who eloquently like laid out in front of all those older gentlemen in the shop that, you know, this is not right. This is not the way we need to be more open-minded. And until we are more open-minded, we won't go anywhere. Yeah. I, I thought yeah. the barbershop scene was like that just in itself is like a, yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, I'm not going to lie. It was a little bit nerve wracking, um, Pamela and Darwin, because, you know, like growing up as a black, growing up as a black kid, the barbershop is where you went with your parents when you were young and you saw all these men in there talking about sports and sometimes it would, it would be hyper masculine, you know, like this hyper macho energy in the black. Like I have been in black barbershops where, Either it was very sophisticated and fathers brought their sons and you will see ministers and affluent people to community. But I would also get the opposite where I would go to another barbershop, maybe ran by younger barbers and people in there, they're, they're blasting rap music with vulgarities, talking about, you know, um, homophobic situations. Uh, they'll be doing push-ups, you know, lifting weights. I know that sounds funny, but lifting weights in the barbershop. <laughs> yeah. Like when I say hypermasculine, the, the game is on, beers are being passed around as you're getting your haircut. Um, so there's like two variations of like the black barbershop, but it's always been hypermasculine. So even though that even now being like in my late thirties, it's kind of like, I, I feel more equipped to deal with the world. Cause I also like mentor and help a lot of young people. And I think that's also helped me as a, as a mentor towards uh, queer kids. It's like, putting myself out there on the lines, making myself uncomfortable sometimes and kind of growing from that in order to create a space for, you know, people behind me or the younger generation coming up to be more comfortable. And that's what I love about this whole generation, the whole Gen Z generation, that under 28, 27 group of individuals, they're kicking the door down unapologetically. I'm living for it. I'm here for it. I'm here for the... I'm here for the um, the pronouns. I'm here for everything you can think of. I'm so here for that, and I love it, you know. And I love how, like, RuPaul's Drag Race has become like a pop culture norm now. Like, even within heterosexual families, people know of it. Um, but I just love how people are just kicking the doors down. But to bring it back to that situation of barbershop, I myself was slightly nervous because that was organic. There was no, okay, let's sit down and let's plan out how we're gonna interview 
it was kind of like, look, we don't have time for you to sit with people to interview them a day or two before. Either you're going to come in this shop and interview us or you got to go somewhere else. And so it was literally on the fly, like me being in the chair, looking at people, all that was happening. As you saw, there was really no pre-planning because they were running a business and they didn't have time. They didn't want to go through the rigmarole of trying to plan who could come that, you know, and I kind of like that because it just, it brought in literally people from the street who came in and just organically became a part of the conversation. And they told us at the beginning of that scene, they said, well, I hope you guys don't get upset, but we're going to curse and we're going to say it exactly how it is. And if you don't like it, you can go film somebody else. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. And I put myself in a space. And as I was asking the question, there was a lot of people like overlooking me like this as I was answering the question. And I felt a little nervous, but I powered through it because not only I, not only did I power through it for myself, but I powered through it to speak to the younger Michael at 13 years old who was nervous of being outed in a barbershop or being outed in a church space, even though that hasn't happened. But it's that that fear. It can't it resurfaced again. Um, but I set myself through it because I said, you know what? If a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old could watch this, Black as you are, and they could see what's taking place in this barbershop, it's worth it because it's going to help somebody. And that's the, that's the landscape that I look at. Yeah. So we need to take a quick break for a PSA, but let, let's pick up with this when, when we come back. Sure. KXSF is anti-hate. San Francisco Community Radio condemns all acts of violence, bigotry, and hate aimed at our marginalized neighbors. We vow to actively combat prejudice by using our unique broadcasting and digital platforms to raise our voices in support of change through collective action. Help us shape a better future. For more information, go to kxsf.fm slash kxsfacts. I'm Clay Andrews from the Spiral Electric. And I'm Matias Drago, also from the Spiral Electric. And you should support local art because all art begins locally. Radio, Support local radio because local, radios. local radio is your source to find out about things you, going how, on. How do you radio. know what's good? There's so much stuff out there. You need your DJs and curators. So listen. Okay, uh, so we're back. You're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Pamela Louie. The show is Queerly Drinking, and I'm honored to have. Uh, be having a great conversation with two people, uh, Michael and Michael Rice. Do you how do you? I know that your the spelling of your name, Michael, is a little different. So how do you pronounce your first name? Michael. Michael. Okay. <laughs> Good. Uh, so Michael Rice, who is a uh, filmmaker as well as a choreographer, uh, Michael's latest film, Black as You Are, is going to be shown this weekend at uh, Frameline, the San Francisco LGBTQIA Film Festival. Uh, the film will be on uh, Sunday, June 10th, June, June 19th, at the Castro Theater at 6.15. And also Darren Acosta, who is a uh, steam wine professional, and that is how, how uh, I know them. And uh, Darren also founded an organization called Co-Fermented, and another time we'll, we'll get into talking about Co-Fermented a bit, but that's a, a queer organization within the wine industry. And when we left off, we were talking about the barbershop culture. Uh, and I'll just say this much as someone who's who has never been – I went to a barbershop when I was a kid because I refused to go to you know the women's hair salon. So I used to go to Charlie's Barbershop around the corner, much to my mother's chagrin. But at least she was, the only thing she liked about it is that I actually would let somebody brush my hair because otherwise I wouldn't let anyone touch my hair. 
but I, you know, it's nothing like the barbershop experience that we were talking about. Uh, but from I was I am I you know, have watched you know a number of episodes of the LeBron James show, The Shop, where you know he has different figures, mostly but not exclusively uh, sports figures, uh, come in and they they discuss a range of issues. And I was thinking to myself, I wish LeBron James would talk. Let, let them talk about this. I would love to hear them, these people who have like talk about their views on you know on you know people who are transgender um like wouldn't that be brave of lebron james uh so um darwin i don't know if you have any thoughts or experiences with this too but but, uh yeah i was just wondering about that so i actually in new york city there's like a whole different world with the dominican barbershops they're everywhere and they also are a space where it's very hyper masculine my brother is actually a barber. And whenever I go to New York, I go to the barbershop where he works and they're playing merengue or bachata. And it's always very, a whole bunch of guys passing beers and whiskey. And they're talking about sports, they're betting, they're playing the, the Dominican lottery. And it's, it was just like, that just was the norm of the black, of like a Dominican barbershop too. It was very much similar to like a black barbershop where everybody was very open-minded, talked about whatever. And for like women, it was the Dominican salon. So there was like, I used to go with my dad to barbershops. I used to take myself when I was old enough to go by myself. But then I would take my mom or go with my mom growing up. And I saw both worlds of when people would open and talk about things. Um, so like for me, I actually get, after coming out, I get really nervous going into a barbershop because I, I identify as non-binary. Um, that conversation I don't even has yet to really happen in the in the Latin community because the language of Spanish itself is very is very very binary. Um, it's very masculine or feminine, um, and I dress in a feminine way, but I present myself in like a masculine form. I still I still go get haircuts, I get fades, I get my beard trimmed. So walking into even my brother will ask me like, oh, you have more piercings. Like, you know, he'll, he'll like question a lot of the things that I've done to myself when I sit in his chair. And there are times where I'm just like, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to walk in this barbershop, in this barbershop and just do what I, and just be who I am. Sorry, Pamela. Or I sometimes have even questioned my brother why he thinks in certain ways. Um so I'm so sorry, Tyler. Um, I then I said we, we were talking about earlier when we were saying like you know in the 80s and 90s when the AIDS epidemic happened, and I'm kind of kind of just show share a bit of my experiences coming out. My parents came to the U.S. to New York in the 80s and 90s to New York when it was the time of of like the major time of the epidemic. I was born in 97. So growing up, I really did not know about the AIDS epidemic until I was 11 or 12. It was never discussed in any of my grade schools growing up. And um, when I when I I went through moments in my like in my grade school where I already knew that I was very attracted to masculine people, um, and by the time that I was able to come out. My parents have always thought that anyone that wanted to be that came out as gay wanted to be trans because that was just like the stigma back then. Like they didn't really know that it was a spectrum. They didn't know that it was uh, like a community. They just 
came into the States and they lived in a community that was next to another community where there were a lot of trans people and there was a huge transgender uh, nightlife. So a lot of their perspective was that there, that anyone that was gay was trans, was trans. And it took, but you know, for some of us growing up in households where there's a lot of stereotyping stigmas, we cannot wait. The, like I could not wait for the day that I was. Uh, it seems like Darwin's having we're having some technical difficulties, Darwin. Uh, that's okay. I we can't hear you now, but just whenever you can. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that 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 just happens in today in in today's world. Well, but yeah, you know, as we're talking about the the barber shops and how, uh, you know, it's a great forum because that's where people are ver are very open. But I was wondering how uh, Michael, you were able to uh, get other people to talk to you uh, on camera. I mean, you there were you know other people whether who they were. were I mean, just a range of people and the, the kids, like, I just love seeing those, the, you know, the kids and they were dancing and like, right. how did you find them? You know, and how did you find, yeah. How, how did you find people to be part of this? Um, it was very organic. I literally just walked down in the West village in New York city. Um, people call that, you know, our village village <laughs> the gay the neighborhood of new york city and i literally just walked down christopher street and i went to the pier because i knew you know when i first moved to new york city at 21 years old i knew that that was the place where everybody that was gay went or queer went to and so you know years later um almost 15 years later we look at, I, I, I looked at that space too, like, hey, it's still there. Uh, it's still happening. Um, there's a lot of gentrification that has happened since then, but it's the, the demographic is still there. The kids are still pushing back and forth from the pier to Christopher Street uh, to Washington Square Park, which is next to NYU. And so you get a lot of, uh, you get a lot of black queer kids. That's, that's traditionally been the home of a lot of just gay people in general, but especially for black queer kids, it, it was a form, that location is like in a form of escapism, you know, where you can be queer, you're out of Brooklyn or Queens or wherever borough you're from, the Bronx, and you go there and you just have fun and you clean out and you laugh with friends and you eat 99 cent pizza slices. Darwin, I know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, dollar pizza <laughs> slice. Hold, yeah, hold okay. on, I'm from New York as well. I know what you're talking. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you understand? You understand? Yeah, I, I remember when 99 when every, when every pizza slice was 99 cents. Was okay. 99 cents, yeah. right? Okay. And the one dollar Arizona cans. <laughs> and the Arizona cans. Look on a budget, on a budget. Okay. Uh, and so you know you go through all those spaces and. I did the same thing. I just revisited what I knew. And I organically went up to people and say, hey, I'm doing a documentary about, you know, queer, queer phobia within the black community. Would you be interested in being a subject and allowing me to be in your space, to maybe tell your story? And uh, mostly everyone said, yes, yeah, sure, why not? You know, and I said, okay. And I rolled with it, you know. Um, some people weren't able to be put in the film and some people kind of recanted later on, like, I don't think I want to do it. I'm like, oh, okay. So I chose the people who really wanted to go forward and I told their story. So it took about, I didn't realize it, but it took about two years 
And then it probably took about another eight months to write it because it was pretty complex. I think that this is the most complex thing I've ever written as far as a script. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, I, when was it hard? To, like when, when people said, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm down to doing this. Um, uh, did you find that there was just automatically trust or did you find that you need to, to gain their trust? You definitely have to gain their trust. There was a lot of mistrust. I mean, I, I will say this. I mean, and not to be negative towards anybody, the situation that happened in the Black LGBT community in New York City during the late 80s, early 90s, when Paris is Burning was being filmed, there was a lot of mistrust for some things that happened with the director from Paris is Burning to where the ballroom community decided to shut off from the world for almost a decade plus of time. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, and I don't, you know, yeah, I really don't, I'm not in this space necessarily like to point fingers and do anything because I don't know the ins and out, but I do know the history and people who are still alive, uh, who is so adamant about it as if it happened yesterday. Um, and so being, a, being aware of that as a, as a black queer man, I wanted to make sure that I didn't have any kind of questions to where people felt uncomfortable or people felt that they were just being utilized as a spectacle and not as someone who's really wanting to tell their story and be authentic. So this is why I kind of exposed myself in the same way. I didn't, really didn't plan on putting myself in the documentary to be honest with you. Uh, I did that with the first one because it was such a complex matter. But then as this continued on, I, it just ev it evolved into me putting myself in there because there was so much of myself that I could understand. I'm like, well, who better could tell the story than myself because I've been through all the different layers that a lot of people have went through. And so creating that trust factor, walking down to the pier, telling people who I am, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a black gay man, I live in Brooklyn, you know, I had a, another documentary out before, and I just want to tell you a story. We get a chance to talk. We ate pizza. We ate Chinese food. We sat at the pier. We watched the kids Vogue. And I think once that trust was kind of established, and it took a, a few months, I'm not going to lie, it took about a few months to really establish that trust. And once that was established, then I was able to put my production team together and we were able to start, okay, hey, we're going out with you guys tonight. So just act like we're not here, have fun, and we're just like, riding your coattail and that's how a lot of stuff unfolded when you saw the kids in the village i had met them maybe a couple weeks before but as i try to get to know them and talk to them on the phone and garner their trust they was totally carefree they let me have it they spoke how they wanted to speak and they moved on and from there we told their story so have uh the kids and, and other people who are interviewed in film, like some of the guys from the barbershop, have, have they seen it? A, a couple people have. Um, one of the guys from the barbershop have. The two of the, um, well, they're not kids anymore. They're like 20 years old and 21. <laughs> but at the time we filmed them, you know, they were like 17, 18, 19 years old. And so it's just funny to look back up and two, two uh, of them, um, Aphrodite, which went by, at the time went by Anthony with the pink and black hair, um, has seen it. And Anthony, I mean, oh, sorry, Aphrodite will be at 
uh, frame line. She is flying up from New York or flying across from New York to San Francisco. Palmer, our, uh, the trans man within the film, he is going to be at Frameline as well. And so those, those individuals had the chance to see the documentary. Nelly had the chance to see the documentary when we had a preview night. So we're still waiting on the others. Some people have moved around and um, have jobs, but you know, it's gonna happen. We're just, we're just on our third month. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, and this is, you know, this, but there were, like you, Darwin, there were a number of points during the film when I, I was in tears, but, you know, on every watch, when you have, you know, the excerpt with um, Dominique Remy Fells, mm. it, it's just so, it, I, it just breaks my heart. Um, was she murdered during the production of the film? She or what? Had you had? Were you still shooting she, at that point, or we were? We had just we had just started shooting excerpts of George Floyd, where we actually went to Minneapolis. So that footage that you see in Minneapolis, that's actually my team in Minneapolis. Like we flown out there, and I and. As that was happening, and as I started like organically creating the film, the um, events were taking place live. You know, like things were happening in real time. And it went from me dealing with the trauma of police brutality, and then all of a sudden, boom, the attack of Ayanna Dior, you know? And then I saw, which was days, literally days after George Floyd, and then the murder of Dominique Remy Fells. And it all just started happening like this in real time. And so when that happened with Dominique, I decided to go to Philadelphia. Um, I researched um, the young man named um, Malcolm Lewis, uh, who is an outreach activist uh, in Kensington, which is a heavily, um, it's, it's, it's a heavily drug ran neighborhood um, with a lot of, a lot of problematic situations when it comes to narcotics. And so he goes out there and he does a lot of outreach. And I told him I would like to interview him. And I would also like to uh, speak to him about, you know, his run-in with uh, Dominique. And he said, sure. So basically what ended up happening is that he was actually filming and doing test runs with his camera. Um, and Dominique came across organically. It was not planned. And so all that footage that you see of Dominique walking in the mirror, that happened all organically. Nothing was planned. And what ended up happening was I interviewed him. Uh, he took me to the area where he interviewed her. And he said, this literally happened weeks ago. And I'm, I'm devastated by it. And, you know, to see that cis, Black, heterosexual man who's very open and very caring about people in his community to see how emotional he was over the death of that black trans woman was transformational for me, you know, cause it just, re it just reminds me that, you know, we, as a, as a, as a black community, we're not a monolith. We all have different levels and tiers to who we are, you know, and there's a lot of black people in the community, a lot of a straight black men that support LGBTQ people and Malcolm is one of those people. And so Malcolm said he would love for her story to be told. So he, gave us the right to use his footage uh, from Dominique. And what I did was infuse his interview with my actual interview of him. 
and us going to the physical locale of the last place he spoke and saw Dominique. And so I thought it was important to tell her story through that matter. Yeah, I mean, that, and, you know, it's, you know, now that I know the backstory of how you uh, came to, to getting the footage and that's not something you shot yourself, it's, it's, it's really seamless. Um, and, you know, as I said, it's, I can't imagine you're, there will be a dry eye in the Castro Theater on Sunday night. Um, it's, it's pretty heavy. It, yeah, it is. And, and that's just one story. You know, mm -hmm. as I said, like, you know, Philadelphia alone, there are there are multiple trans women who, who were, were murdered um, in, right. in 2020. So, yeah, you know what? What I found with the film and uh, is that even though it, there's it's it's heavy, you know, I mean, the you know, Dominic's story just I think being as as hard as it gets. But, you know, also in, in other respects, too. Uh, but then there's also a lot of joy and empowerment in it. And I was wondering how, you know, if you set out to strike that balance so that it wouldn't just be this really sad, depressing account of, you know, the experience and, and the, you know, the issue of, you know, of transphobia, but uh, where it's also showing, okay, it's as bad as things are right now, especially in certain parts of the country, it's a lot easier for people who are who identify as transgender to to be fully who they are. And here are some of the really wonderful stories, you know, like the kids. I mean, I the kids made me cry, but those were tears tears of joy just watching them. Right. Yeah. So um, just one second as I make sure the charger's on. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, at, when it came to like the serious aspects of making sure that there is a balance. That was really important to me uh, because I didn't want, especially as a black man, one thing I did not want to do is create a space where I'm harping on the black community because the black community, we have gone through, black and brown community, I should really say, have gone through enough trauma as it is in this country, let alone needing another aspect or tool just to keep pointing the finger saying, you know, you're this, you're this, you're this. But also too, at the end of the day, I'm still a black man. You know, um, you'll see that, I would think, before you actually know my sexuality. I am a Black man. And so what I did not want to do is leave off on a negative tier to where where um, I will leave off on a negative tier to where it's all about... Um, Hold on a second, Michael. We're having a little con connectivity it's issue. All about, you know, just pointing the finger and pointing the finger. No, it's about creating a space. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, well, while while uh, while you're working on that, Michael. To my natural light. Uh, yeah, uh, Darren. I, I was wondering, like, for you when you saw the film, and I know you've you've seen it a few times, but. Did, what sort of emotions did it leave you with? Um, it's a lot. It's a lot of emotions. I've, I felt with everything going on, everything that happened in the film and was put together, I cried. There were definitely tears of joy and tears of sadness. And I also, for one, at the end felt 
I felt seen and I know that I'm probably not the only one that felt like, you know, the the hardships of what trans people and LGBTQI people of color have to go through growing up and the awkwardness and the stigmas, like I was really happy to see it come to light in a production um, like this. It made me like, it just made me feel validated for the experiences that I've been through myself. And I know that many other people probably feel the same way. Um, and for our stories to be told and heard, and I'm so, I, I just felt, I'm very proud that Michael, that you put this film together. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michael, how, how are you? Are you back? Can we hear you? Well, we can't. Well, let's get, let's give it another minute. We just have a couple <laughs> more minutes uh, yeah. as, as well, but no, I, I think and as like, as great as it is that this is going to be shown at, on you know on Sunday at, at Frameline in San Francisco and is really important, I I hope that this is going to be shown in other you know outside of California, yeah. outside of the coast, you know outside of the major cities, but that yeah. it, go, it goes into you know goes to, into the the southern states where yeah, there are definitely people who need to feel that they're being seen and that there is some you know that there is that reputation. Uh, uh, Michael, do you know if, if there are any plans for it to be shown, let's say in, you know, in some of these smaller towns and in, in areas where you know, we have, you know, where there is right now th this, this backlash, you know, against people who are LGBTQ? Well, we're definitely planning. I mean, as of now, we have received, uh, 22 official selections, uh, within three months, which is the most. I've ever gotten within a 90 day span. Uh, but we're also looking to work with some companies like Vive and uh, Gilead and some other companies, um, Glad, hopefully, you know, that can be able to sponsor us going to some of these smaller towns and uh, maybe some you know, rural places within the US and places outside the US, you know, where we can really get this story out, you know, um, as an artist, as a lot of people know, it takes money to travel. As we speak right now, I'm in a hotel in Cincinnati because I have a screening tomorrow um, here in Cincinnati, Ohio. And so it really, it's getting out there. You know, we're, we have a few dates this week in the Midwest outside of going to Frameline uh, on Sunday, uh, June 19th for the screening. So. It's really, you know, making its mark, and I'm really looking forward to going to the South, um, rural areas, um, LGBT centers across America to really show this film so we can create dialogue around this. Yeah, it is. Well, uh, uh, you know, we are, we're out of time. Uh, it's, been, it's been such an interesting conversation. Thank you to both of you, Darna Costa of Co-Fermented, and Michael Rice, who uh, is a filmmaker as well as a choreographer of Michael's latest film black as you are it will be shown this sunday at uh, frameline the san francisco lgbtqia film festival uh it will be at the castro theater june 19th at 6 15 i believe there are st still tickets available and i even though i've seen the film i plan on and i i plan on coming over and trying to see it again um and i would of course love to meet you and some of the cast members but uh Thank you so much for being here, and you know, thank you for making this film, and uh, you, know, and just keep on doing what you're doing, both of you. Thank you so much. Okay.
All right, and for everybody else, you're listening to KXSFLP San Francisco. Uh, it is just about 4 o'clock, and we'll be back in just a quick moment. Support for KXSF okay. comes from Open Mind Music, a haven for record lovers since 1994. Henry at Open Mind believes music soothes the soul, inspires change, and makes us move. Find a wide variety from ABBA to Zappa, funk to punk, bebop to hip-hop, including new and used LPs, vintage turntables, local art, and your chance to meet Roxy the Doxy. Come find your groove in record time at Open Mind Music, 5521 College Avenue near Rockridge Bart in Oakland. All right, so uh, DJ Obsidian, who has the, who's usually here at 4 o'clock, is running a little late today, so I'm going to be putting on some automation in just a few minutes. But again, I just wanted to uh, thank you one more time, everyone who's been with me today on the, on the program uh, at the 2 o'clock hour. There were several members of the band Commando, and uh, Commando is going to be performing on the 20, June 23rd at the Independent here in San Francisco. Uh, and they are a new metal band, but not just any old new metal band. They are a queer uh, super group. Uh, everyone in the band is extremely accomplished, and you could listen to their, their latest album, which is also called Commando, uh, and check out what they're doing. And yeah, there are tickets that are available for uh, their performance next Thursday night at the Independent. And also, at the last hour, another thank you to Michael Rice and Darwin Acosta for the conversation we had about Michael's current film, or new film, Black As You Are, which is about, uh, you know, focuses on trans people of color, uh, the, you know, the good and the bad, um, you know, the, the continued violence and oppression, but also some really wonderful stories of acceptance, too. And so next week I will be back, but I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure what, what I'm going to be doing. So, but it's, it'll be something fun. I'll tell you that much. And hopefully the transistor will be back next week too. Wouldn't that be nice? So wishing everyone a wonderful rest of your week. And yeah, if you, especially if you live in the Bay Area and you're looking for some cool things to do, check out Commando at the Independent and check out the Frameline uh, Film Festival in addition to Michael's film, Black As You Are. There are a lot of other movies that will be uh, screened that are, you know, will make you, they'll make you laugh, they'll make you cry, they'll make you happy, you just got out of the house. So wishing everyone a, a good rest of your Wednesday, and until next week. Mm-hmm.